Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, his clothes became a dazzling white, and suddenly there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. When Peter saw this, he says, it is good for us to be here. Lord, if you wish, I'll build three dwellings here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son, the beloved. With him I'm well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples saw this, they fell to the ground, and they were overcome by fear. But Jesus came to them, he touched them, and he said, get up and do not be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one standing there except Jesus himself alone. And as they were going down the mountain, then Jesus ordered them, saying, tell no one about this vision until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The Gospel of the Lord. So I wonder if any of you have heard about the spiritual revival that's happening or that has happened at Asbury University. Some have. Asbury University is a private Christian school in Wilmore, Kentucky. It identifies as non-denominational, but has ties to the Wesleyan holiness movement, which means I think that it's inclined toward the Methodist tradition in not so many words. Apparently, they're experiencing a surprising, unintended, unplanned, Holy Spirit-induced, good old-fashioned revival there. And they have been since a week before this past Wednesday, as far as I can tell. Wednesday is when Asbury University has its regularly scheduled weekly chapel, as many small private religiously affiliated undergraduate colleges do. And at Asbury, like so many other schools, students are required to attend some number of these 10 o'clock Wednesday morning chapel services each semester. And last Wednesday, a week ago from last Wednesday, something odd happened. After the benediction, when worship was supposed to be over, when I'm guessing students usually pull out their cell phones and put on their coats and shuffle off to their next class or to the cafeteria for lunch or back to bed, they didn't leave. Many, or most, maybe all of them, students, professors, staff, and worship leaders just stayed. They stuck around, singing quietly, praying earnestly, reading scripture, publicly confessing their sins even. Small groups of prayer circles formed. People raised their arms in praise. Some knelt at the altar. Some prostrated themselves on the floor. According to those who've witnessed it, the space was filled with peace, peace, 
and quiet and music and joy and light and love and all the good vibes. Ultimately, people began to come and go, but the praying and the worshiping, the reading and the confessing continued. The place has been packed, standing room only, according to a professor of theology from the seminary across the street who walked over so that he could see this in order to believe it. And students have been showing up from other schools, the University of Kentucky, Ohio Christian, Georgetown College, Mount Vernon Nazarene University, Purdue, and Indiana Wesleyan, too. I saw some Asbury alumni who live here in New Palestine post something about it on Facebook last week, too. And I find it fascinating. My skeptical instincts, some of what I've read about it and my limited experience with such things tempt me to be critical, but I will not go there. It's not something that ever happened in chapel when I was an undergrad, not that I would have been there to notice. They didn't take attendance at Capital University. <laughs> and if it's all it's cracked up to be, for those who are experiencing it, more power to them. Anyway, all of this lasted for at least a week. It was still happening until, again, this past Wednesday, anyway, when I sat down to start thinking about this sermon and about today and about what we call Transfiguration Sunday around here. An event, for what it's worth, that I would have been equally skeptical about had I heard about it when Jesus roamed the earth. Because it seems like a spiritual revival of some sort took place on that mountain with Jesus and Peter and James and John. Jesus took them up the mountain after six days, we're told, which is another way of saying on the seventh day, which means we're supposed to draw a meaningful connection to what happened when Moses took a hike up a different mountain on the seventh day and where he came down with the Ten Commandments, remember, after a transformative, transfiguring moment of his own up there on Mount Sinai. And in order to make that connection even more clearly, the disciples with Jesus see him in conversation not just with Moses, but with Elijah, too, as a sign and as a declaration of his prophetic status and succession as the Messiah, the next, the last, the final word, the one worth listening to as God's chosen one, anointed one, beloved one that they should follow. So however and whatever happened up on that mountain with Jesus, by way of his face that shined like the sun, his clothes that became dazzling white, and the appearance of those ghosts from the past, that talking cloud, and God's profound declarations about his belovedness, the point was to reveal for those carefully chosen disciples, Peter, James, and John, that Jesus was something and someone special, that he was worth listening to, learning from, following faithfully. And we'd like to imagine the disciples were changed by all of this, 
Peter, James, and John, I mean. They were knocked to their knees by what they saw and heard, after all. They were filled with fear and awe at what they witnessed, remember. Maybe they prostrated themselves on the floor, raised their hands in worship, Maybe they prayed silently or aloud, and like the students and the faculty and the staff at Asbury University last week, Peter wants them to stay, to make it all last. Lord, if you wish, I'll build three dwellings here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. It's good for us to be here. But as great And as holy as it was, as mighty and as transformative as it seemed to be, that does not happen. It doesn't last for long. Jesus seems to nip this thing in the bud pretty quickly. He comes to the disciples, he touches them, seemingly snaps them out of their spiritual shock and awe, and they head back down the mountain straight away. And as they go, he tells them to keep all of this on the down low. He tells them not to tell anyone about this vision until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. And that, for me, is where the lesson, the inspiration, the challenge, and the hope about whatever happened on that mountaintop with Jesus matters. Because the lesson, the inspiration, the challenge and the hope of whatever spiritual renewal or revival we're looking for, longing for, or experiencing shows up in what happens as a result of it all. Because what happens next for Jesus, as God's beloved anointed chosen one, was even more surprising, more unbelievable, more awe-inspiring than what happened on the mountain, if you ask me. He healed the sick, and he gave sight to the blind. He taught about loving the lost and about forgiving endlessly. He chastised and he challenged the rich and the wealthy. He preached against the powerful. He talked politics. And he protested injustice in every form. He overturned some tables in the temple once, too. And after all of that, because of all of that and more, Jesus gets crucified. He shares a meal with his friends. He gets arrested. He's denied and betrayed by the closest of his followers, Peter, James, and John, just to name a few. And then he dies a horrible, humiliating, public, painful death, whipped, beaten, mocked, spit upon, crowned with thorns, and nailed to a cross. So I kind of think... Jesus is saying on his way down the mountain this morning, don't go yapping about this mountaintop stuff, this little transfiguration up here on the hill, about this spiritual revival you think you all are having, unless or until it amounts to something. Unless or until 
you're able to see and connect it with the rest of what's to come. Don't talk about spiritual renewal and spiritual revival or faithful transformation unless or until it leads to some measure of sacrifice in your life. Don't talk about spiritual revival or transfiguration unless or until it comes from or leads to a place of humility, justice, mercy, and peace. Don't talk about spiritual renewal or faithful transformation unless or until it has something to do with the new way of living and moving and breathing in the world. Unless or until something changes in you that does something to change the world around you. So may whatever spiritual revival or renewal or transfiguration we seek as God's people in this world, may that inspire us not to stay put or to cling to the mountaintop moments of our lives for the sake of the mountaintop moments in our lives. But may renewal and revival and transfiguration fill us and inspire us and move us down from the mountain beyond our sanctuary, off of our couches and out of our kitchens, into the lonely places, toward the least among us, in the face of darkness and the powers that be, for the sake of a world that is ripe for and hungry for, the life-changing, life-giving, hard, holy grace and good news that belong to us all in Jesus Christ. Amen.